0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. Zechariah is a prophet who delivers a message to Israel regarding their national failure to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. We might say, well, this is only a building. So what really is the big deal? The big deal is that we see a deeper problem in the stalling of the construction project. The problem in the issue is whether the Lord really can build His people and His city into a place that is worthy of his dwelling. So can the Lord build his city? Is the Lord sovereign enough to bring his redeemed people into his presence as he has promised at the exit of Eden? Please stay tuned to this series on Zechariah, where we consider the night visions. Are they visions of doom or deliverance? We conclude the study of the book of Zechariah, Prophet, that certainly is not the easiest I can vouch and affirm uh, to understand. Uh, certainly, he makes us scratch our head and work hard to understand what he intends. But I can assure you this uh, working through the prophet, one of my favorite books, uh, probably of the Bible now, it's been a worthwhile exercise for me, and I hope it's been the same for you. And when we come to, to chapter 14, The prophet is basically wrapping up what he started in chapter 12, and this is the final uh, conclusion of his intention. As I've mentioned in the book, you have the visions and you have the prophetic word. Now chapter 14 is uh, something we talk about in theology of theodicy, and what this simply means is dealing with the justice of God. And this becomes a a difficult question. The book of Job is is obviously a book where uh, that is being addressed. How do we deal with suffering when we haven't done anything directly to deserve it? And you read the first two verses of Zechariah 14. These are very difficult verses. Uh, They're they're easy to understand. Uh, It's easy to understand exactly what he intends from the Hebrew. There's nothing difficult in that sense. It's just difficult to understand in the sense of how this is the God who rebukes Israel for not caring for the orphan, a God who rebukes his people for not caring for the widow, a God who manifests his humility, and a God who cares for the humble and the broken. And yet at the same time, in his description of God's people being plundered, this is a tragic disgusting description of a fallen world and it becomes sort of this this issue where you say how can a God who is this good who knows that these are the things his people will endure and yet we still have to affirm that this God is good this is the issue of theodicy he's a just God he's a good God I know this to be true And yet there are disgusting, horrible, depraved things that transpire in this age. Zechariah 14 makes no secret of this. So how do we then maintain the affirmation, our our profession, our conviction? That our God really is good. He really is. And yet there's still this suffering in this world. How do we keep these two things in perspective and not lose our faith? Because clearly, Zechariah is not writing this so that we would lose our faith. So I want to divide this into the day of judgment, where we understand the context of what he's dealing with. And secondly, the day of peace. And and contrast these things that the Lord intends. And so let's begin with the day of judgment. Now, as you notice, it speaks of the coming day of the Lord. And so Zechariah 12 through 14 Uh, That is a theme that's going on in these chapters, the day of the Lord, what the Lord is going to do on that day. And so as he maps this out, one commentator, I think, framed this in a very helpful way. If your Bibles are still open, you look at 13 verse 9, where when you look at 13 verse 9, chapter 14 is expounding on that, saying this is what it looks like so 13 verse 9, Zechariah says, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So when Zechariah 13, 9 is laying this out, is laying out the doctrine of sanctification. If we're going to put this In systematic theology terms, that's what it's getting at. The prophet saying, the Lord will sanctify his people. Now, so often when we think of sanctification in a general sense, we think of it as living more in conformity to God's law, or maybe not sinning as often. Now, those are what I would argue byproducts of sanctification. I think a better way of understanding sanctification is seeing us joined to the resurrected Christ and our Christ conforming us to wanting to be a servant people. Remember, we've talked about the Lord of hosts. We should see ourselves on this earth, male, female, child, any professor of faith, as one who is part of the heavenly army. That's our identity. We think of Abraham praying uh, to the angel of the Lord, interceding on behalf of Sodom, uh, giving his input as an earthling to the heavenly council. Isaiah called up in the midst of the angels, the apostle Paul recounting a similar experience. When Paul tells us we're seated with Christ, we need to see ourselves as a people who are seated in heaven. So sanctification really is our conformity to that heavenly calling, a, a consciousness That I am a child of God. I am to live as his servant, redeemed in Christ, made alive in the resurrected Lord. And so in 13.9, that's what Zachariah is saying. The Lord is going to take his people, refine them, sanctify them, instill in them a consciousness that they are God's holy people. And so as we consider on, or we consider this and can continue to move on. These first two verses in chapter 14 are very difficult to keep family friendly. This is a rather uh, destructive uh, reality of this age. It's speaking of the horrors of war. And the first two verses are really speaking of what God's saints are going to experience before Christ comes again. This is terrible. It's horrendous. There's... Nothing nice to say about it. And in terms of this, as as Zechariah lays this out rather honestly before us, he's laying out the satanic ideal. If somebody says, I don't want to live under the reign of God. I don't want God to rule over me. I don't want to submit to him. He's a tyrant. This is a passage you can take a person to and say, do you want to see what the world looks like When God's removed from it, when when all of his restraining is gone, this is what it looks like. Because verses 1 and 2 is dealing with the horrors of the nations coming out to assemble at the mount of the assembly. Remember Armageddon? We've talked about this. It's a mountain of assembly. The nations come together to make war, to destroy the saints, to make war against Christ. And as they come together, this is where the Lord has handed them over to their sin. We think of Matthew 24, where Matthew speaks of the coming day of the Lord being like the days of Noah, where there is the existence of man and goes about his days, handed over to immorality, doing what he wants, and then all of a sudden judgment comes. That's what this picture is, what it looks like when the Lord finally lets Satan loose, says, go ahead, gather your army, make war with my people. So when we hear this and we think about this in terms of of this uh, event that's happening, in this day of judgment, the force of this day of judgment, many people say, well, this is just Israel going into exile. This is just a fall of Jerusalem. That's what's in view here. Until we really look at Matthew 24, and again, this is why I think Zechariah is probably one of the most undervalued prophets in our uh, understanding of Scripture, because these first two verses, Christ when he lays out Matthew 24, it makes sense. Matthew 24 makes a lot of sense when you look at Zechariah 14, because what is Israel? What does what is Israel? What do his disciples expect? Jerusalem, throne of David, glory. So when you look at Matthew 24, and we just quickly walk through this in a very summary fashion, Christ warns, verses 3 through 8, there's going to be false Christs that will deceive even maybe the elect. We have verses uh, 3 through 8 where it goes on with the unrest, war, famine, earth, the desolations and abominations where Christ goes through them in Matthew 24, 15 through 28. And then we have the coming of the Son of Man so what Christ is saying in Matthew 24 is he's saying, just because I've walked this earth and I've come to Jerusalem on the donkey, don't think that now I'm going to the throne of David and I'm going to bring in the kingdom of glory. These abominations, this final battle, it's still coming. There's going to be a manifestation of the day of the Lord with Christ and the cross, resurrection. We've talked about Pentecost where Peter identifies it as a manifestation of the day of the Lord, but it's not the definitive day of the Lord. And so when you look at Zechariah 14, 1 and 2, Zechariah is saying, listen, don't be alarmed if the history of Israel continues to get repeated in these patterns. So yeah, the exile is part of this. The exodus is part of this. Uh, The fall of Jerusalem is part of this. Uh, the reformation and persecutions that happen is part of this. The persecutions we read about in our day and age is part of this. So in other words, what Zechariah is saying to the saints and what Christ is saying is saying, listen, this understanding of sanctification, this, this struggle, it's sort of like what Satan's doing to God regarding Job. Yeah, he loves you. Of course he loves you. Look at all the things you've given him. giving the guy the ideal life. I'd love you too if you gave me all those things. Take it all away. Take his health. Will Job still love you? This is what Zechariah is is opening up. And if you're uh, overly sensitive and you don't want to learn more about the Lord and have a question of how can this God still be good, you'll stop reading at verse 2. But the question is simply this. Are you going to love your God when you're standing upon a pile of sticks watching someone plunder your house, exploit your family, and the guy has a torch at the bottom, and you know he's going to light it. Zechariah is saying, will you still trust in your God at that time? If we stop at verse 2, the simple answer is, I-, I don't know. That's a pretty big test, isn't it? I mean, we can think about Christ, I mean, Christ and the cross, dying a dehumanizing death, we think about the soldiers uh, casting lots for his garments. I mean, that is so depraved when you really think about it. You don't even let the guy die. And, and you're plundering him right in front of his eyes and fighting over who gets what even before the guy dies. It's like, at least let me have some dignity and die and then take my stuff. But that's not what the soldiers do. That's where Zachariah is pushing us. That's what he's saying. Okay, you want to be sanctified. Here is the ultimate test of sanctification. Will you love your Lord in the midst of this? Now, Zechariah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't leave us there. As I mentioned, verses 1 and 2 are laying out a real satanic kingdom. Again, somebody says, I don't want to live under the reign of God. Say, okay, let's look at Zechariah 14:1 and 2. This is where it leads you. Let's read about the days of Noah and what times were like then. You want to go back to that? You want that unrest? You think that's paradise? Let's go on and look at Zechariah 14. So our minds just do not dwell uh, basically in in this place. But as we go on, the Lord is really promising that this is not where the story ends. so if somebody says, your God's unjust, he's cruel, he's mean. Say, wait a minute. It has two verses of a summary making very clear this is not going to necessarily be a fun time. But notice in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight. The thing about Israel in the Exodus is a pattern for this. You can understand why Pharaoh thinks that Moses is, is, is crazy. He's a nut job. You don't need to listen to this guy. Who does he think he is? We've had these people for 400 years. Now that God's going to do something, you're right. But that's the point of the Exodus, isn't it? God's more long-suffering than we understand, and God's justice is greater than we comprehend. That's what verse 3 is is bridging us to understand. We go, oh, wait a minute. Our story does not just end uh, being engulfed in flames and a stick after watching everything taken from us in this world. We have a God who fights on our behalf. We are the ones who plunge this world into this unrest in our rebellion. But our God is going to make this right. So what does this look like? As I promised, we'll cover the rest of this in summary fashion. So let's go and cover it in summary fashion. Verse 1 is basically the title. Where he wants us to understand, all right, let's lay out what I mean by this day. And you find out that this day should really be described as days, uh, a time frame of what's going on. That's the intention. It's several days, several things that are going to happen. And so verse 1 is basically the summary. So he's setting us at at Armageddon. We're on on the mountain. The nations assemble for war. We look around and it seems like everything's lost. That's the picture. We're plundered. We're exploited. What's going to happen? All of a sudden, it's like you've seen in the vision of Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 8, where the mountains open up. The army comes out. And so the Lord goes to war. All of a sudden the heavenly army is showing itself. And it's a majestic, wonderful thing. And so as the Lord goes out and fights against the nations. Again, this is universal. Not just Israel. Not just Rome. But the nations. Verse 1 is setting us up for the stage. We go then to the next section. We have in verse 4. With this construct of on that day. And that's literally put in a Hebrew construct. It's it's grammatically distinguished from other places where you read day in this text. And so in verse 4, as the Lord assembles, he assembles at the Mount of Olives, divides the mountain. Verse 6, we go down to the next section. We have there, there's going to be changes in the universe in terms of how the Lord rules, uh, using language like Revelation. Going on in verse 8, living waters. Uh, Revelation 22, we think of Ezekiel 37, uh, the river of life. Then we go down to verse 9. The Lord is going to show visibly that he's a ruler over all. He's a king now, but he will visibly be the ruler over all. Verse 13, the judgment of God is going to be conscious. It's going to be manifested. Verse 20. We have then the horses are going to lose their way. The military technology is going to be jammed is the essence of this. Verse 21, everything is going to then be set at rest and at peace. Everything will be made holy. So that's your broad sort of skeleton structure of what's going on. Now I want to go back and just highlight a couple of these sections. So if we look at verses one through three, we mentioned the horror of the day. Verses four and five now, where we have this standing of the Lord on the Mount of Olives. Now this is something that's very profound when you look at this because the Lord is um, combining a series of things that have happened in Israel's history. First, he mentions the earthquake in the day of Isaiah. We have in Amos one verse one the prediction that this earthquake is going to happen. Uh, Basically, this is a king who was supposed to uh, do honorable things, uh, but he set up high places and basically, it seems, sold out at the end of his kingship. Now, whether he fully apostatized, the, the text isn't clear. But certainly in terms of his kingship, he sold out and he intruded onto the office of priest. And so this is telling us that the Judah kingship, the Davidic kingship, David's line is not as pure and holy as we would hope. There's something deficient there. And so there's, there's an unrest. That's what we're left with. But this language of the Man of Olives being split in two. Uh, this is basically uh, using language that echoes the Exodus. Uh, we think of the Red Sea being split, Israel passing through. So it's a, a great redemptive event. King, not so much on target, The Lord's going to redo an Exodus event. But this language of the splitting of the mountains and then bringing them together is the image. That is basically the Lord taking a mountain, cutting it in half, and putting something in the middle. So he's making a high plain. Think of Isaiah 40 verse 3. What does the Lord promise? I'm going to cut down the mountains and I'm going to basically make everything a plain. So what this is telling us Up to this point in verses 4 and 5, the Lord's going to recreate a place for us to dwell. We're going to have this peace and we're going to have this rest. Now, I mentioned Zechariah 14 is very much downplayed in the gospel accounts. I'm sure you're familiar where Christ speaks of if we have faith as little as a mustard seed, we have faith that will move mountains. I would argue this passage is a backdrop of that. We're not to stand before mountains and test whether or not we have enough faith and to move mountains and re-landscape things. But the point of this is that if we even have a tiny amount of faith, like the thief on the cross, we enter into the kingdom. We enter into this place where the Lord reshapes and sets us plain on high, and we dwell in the Lord's heavenly city. So now hopefully when you read Christ saying that in the Gospels, your mind goes back to this picture of a mighty God standing on the Mount of Olives where Christ would pray again, uh, calling all these things to our attention, mountain cut in two, putting a mountain in the middle of it and making a giant uh, plateau for his people to dwell and his heavenly city to reside. Skipping down then, verses 9 through 12, that the Lord is the one who's king over all the earth. So we have again this reminder of everything, this whole city that we think is vulnerable, that has fallen, is a city that is dwelling securely. Revelation says what? The gates are never closed, which is an absurd thing. If you think about this in the ancient Near East, you you would not want to go to bed knowing that the gates are wide open. I mean, you you would have someone in your house standing guard to either retreat, fight, defend, because that puts you in a vulnerable place. But the point of revelation is calling back to this reality. The city is so secure. Enemies so put down. There's no point in closing the gates. The place is secured. No one's going to come against the city. No one's going to come against the Lord. Again, he has put down all his enemies. As a force of 9 through 12. Going on then, 13 through 19. Again, calling to our attention different wars. Um, We can think of Israel going into the land, right? The the challenge they have. Oh, these nations are great. They have mighty horses or skilled armies. Oh, the Nephilim are there. The mighty soldiers of old will never win. What does the Lord say? These people will not prevail over you. I will fight for you, 7 verse 17. The significance that the Lord is the one who will triumph. And here's the ultimate significance. Israel's going to plunder the nations. So verses 1 and 2, nations coming out, Armageddon, persecuting the church, harming the church, saints being martyred for the cause and experiencing the hardship of this age. We have now the reversal of that fortune. That the Lord is the one who rises up. And as the Lord rises up, no one's going to come against him. Now, as he says that, it's the assurance that we're going to take all the gold, all the silver, all the wealth of of this age. Now, the point of that, you would understand in the ancient Near East of war, after you conquer your enemy, you can calmly pick through their homes. You can quietly and calmly pick through everything they have and decide who gets what. Because you are the victor. This is the assurance It's not just one small battle or one small nation. It's an international victory. Now, one of the things that I had trouble with trying to figure out is the language of going up year after year to the Feast of Booths. So you got to look into the Feast of Booths. This is associated with a harvest celebration. And so the Feast of Booths is a feast that commemorates Israel dwelling in uh, little booths or shelters or tents in their wilderness sojourn. That's seven days. The eighth day is when they go and they enter into the temple. And it's interesting that this is a a harvest feast. I'm sure anyone who has farmed or is familiar with farming can understand the stress. You can plant, but you don't know what's going to happen between planting and harvest. You really don't have rest until you harvest. Because then you're not counting the chickens before they hatch. You actually substantively know what you have. And the point of the feast was a commemoration of moving from sojourn to rest. Moving from tent to house. Moving from tabernacle to temple. Now, if you're familiar with Messianic Judaism, actually ironically, by the providence of God, it's one of the podcasts I listened to, and they were going through the Feast of Booths, and they said, this is what it means to us as Messianic Jews. We have friends who are Messianic Jews, that's why I listen to the podcast, in case you're wondering. I'm not switching sides or anything, but I was just curious what, what they teach, so I listened to this podcast. So he goes through and says, this is a tradition of what we understand of the Feast of Booths, and it's an international feast. He points out that it's a feast, ideally, for the nations coming up to Jerusalem to enjoy the sacrifice and worship of the true God of Israel. Now, you put that in the context of how this began. Verses 1 and 2, the nations coming out to make war, Armageddon assembling to destroy the things of God. How does the Lord overturn this in His sovereign might and His majesty? that he transforms his people after slaying those who have come against him, taking those who are left, who now bow their knee before him and enter into his presence. We think of Revelation 21, using language along these lines of of coming into the presence of God in his temple and how the Lord dwells in the midst of his people. And so this point of the Feast of Booths, is using human language, a human understanding to communicate the eternal rest. Of always having this festival time where maybe in heaven we do think about our wilderness sojourn and what we've gone through in this age in a limited way, and then we contemplate the beauty of the arrival of our God who has brought us into his rest. Might be an application, not sure if that's necessarily what's going to happen, But the ultimate point of this is that we're no longer going to wonder if the seed time is going to lead to harvest. The Lord is going to harvest his people and bring them into his presence. And so this is where you have in verse 16 then the the Gentiles coming in, entering into this, worshiping the Lord of hosts, having this enjoyment and this peace. Going on then in verses 20 to 21, again, on that day. And so we have then the horses. Now, this is an interesting thing because for Israel, they were not to have horses for war. Uh, Their horses were not to be utilized for war, but for plowing fields, maybe for some things along those lines. But they were not to trust in horses for war. There's no description as to what we do with the horses. But the the implication here is that we plunder in such a way that even these horses that could have turned against the people of God and and military technology and might is sort of the implication of this are now those who are dwelling in this kingdom at peace. There are no enemies. There is no rebellion. The point of the sacrificial system, because again, if you're thinking Feast of Booths, you think of it ending in the temple and and a great and, and glorious sacrifice that is offered. Magnificent sacrifice. I believe it was something like 70 bowls and 70 rams. I mean, think about what that means, sacrificing 70 bowls and all that blood coming out. I mean, that is a sacrifice. So having this imagery in our mind, all the pots that we would normally say are part of the temple. We have now what was basically plundered from the houses are brought into the temple. And these common bowls that, that have not been cleansed by, you know, the blood of animals as was required, that the work of Christ, the definitive work of this kingdom, is so sure that these common bowls that, that are not holy in themselves are actually cleansed and brought into this temple service where God's people dwell. Now, another challenge that I had is when you look in verse 21, where it says "traitor," and I notice now. In the ESV it says, or Canaanite. Traitor doesn't really make sense in terms of the context. And I'm not sure why the ESV chose that. Because this word literally means traitor or Canaanite. And I'd argue that the word should be Canaanite when we understand this universal capturing of the nation. In his vision, when the people come back to the land, the Gentiles grab their hem and say, take us with you, we want to go and worship your God." That's the implication here. And the point of of the Canaanites, Israel was to go into the land and exterminate them. And as we're familiar with Israel's history, they were not successful in that task. But the point of this land is that when the Lord goes to war and he fights on behalf of his people, we're going to dwell with him forever forever. In this feast that, that ends in the celebration of God's provision, the celebration of his goodness, the celebration of his rest is really where the feast of booths is intended to go. Of My goodness, look at what our God has done. He has led us through this time. He has brought us to a place of plenty. He has provided for us abundantly. What a glorious and great God. That's the picture as to where this is heading. And so the the point overall then is basically the vision of Revelation, the heavenly city coming down, Christ on the throne of the Lamb, the river of life proceeding, uh, engaging uh, at the heavenly banquet and the praise of God, singing with the heavenly angels. This is ultimately where the Lord is going. And the Sabbath structure, as I called to your attention, the seven times this construct is used. What the Lord is assuring us is this. Maybe I should have just said this and said amen. But anyway, what the Lord is assuring us is this. That as he started with the chaos in Genesis 1. The tohu avohu, the, the nothingness, the barrenness. Uh, is literally what the Hebrew is saying. The, the wilderness time, nothing there. And how he takes that and orders it and ends at a Sabbath. The Lord is saying, think of that creation pattern. In terms of my providence in history. I'm starting with the chaos of the fall. And moving to the Sabbath rest for my people. That's why we continue on. It's the assurance that our God is at work within us. Weaning us off this world. Conforming us to the age to come. As Israelites who wander in the wilderness time. Longing to arrive at the goal in glory. And the Lord is saying, listen, Satan has a time when he can rebel. Satan has a time when I'm going to allow him freedom to do what he wants. And he's going to gather the nations against you. And it's going to be tough. And it's not always going to be easy or enjoyable. But be sure of this. The victory is mine. Christ has been raised from the dead. He will not prevail. So in the midst of your temptation and struggle, remember that truth. Your victory is sure as you are found in Christ. The very faith that takes hold of Christ is a faith that is setting up with the power of making the plateau of the new heavenly city coming to rest. And so when we ask that question, how can we serve a God who seems to allow this injustice The reality is we have to come to grips with the chaos of the fall. We told God, we don't want order. We don't want your structure. We don't want your ways. We want to live in the chaos of our sin and immorality. We want the destruction that it brings. We don't want your goodness. That's what we said at the fall. So people say it's just about a fruit. No, it's not about a fruit. It's about whether or not Adam and Eve or humanity really want to submit to the ways of God. They said, we don't. We want our immoral ways. We want our self-destructive path. That's what we want. And the Lord says, I know this isn't good. I'm going to take the chaos of what you have done. And I'm going to recreate it. And I'm going to redeem you and sanctify you until the ultimate glorification. And so the point when somebody asks you, how can you serve such a God who allows such immorality? The answer is he gave us a choice. We chose against him. By the grace of God, he didn't leave all of humanity in that choice. Praise be to our God that as we know of the horrors of this age, that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is dwelling with him in the glory of heaven, knowing exactly what the promise of God is. He will test us, he will refine us, and he will bring us to his glory. Let us then continue to say, "The Lord is my God," and let us long to dwell in Rome, that heavenly city that our shepherd is leading us to in this age. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.